This is the Small Moves Podcast with your host, Jason Hertzberger, episode 32. Guys, this guy just performed liver transplant surgery on a dinosaur. Not really, but you'll figure it out in a minute. You're listening to the Small Moves Podcast. Small steps for big progress. With your host, Jason Hertzberger. Your next step starts now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Small Moves Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hertzberger. Today's guest is a Dr. Stephen Cunningham. Dr. Cunningham is an attending surgical physician at St. Agnes Hospital in Baltimore. Steve, uh, Steve, as he generally goes by, is also a author, and he has written two books that are for sale on Amazon right now. His first book was highly awarded, and the second book just recently came out on the topic of nomenclature, basically the the word the words and the sounds of words um, targeted towards children and anatomy, which is obviously his specialization, being a physician. Um, they his the motivation that he sort of hit him that got him into writing books in the first place is actually very interesting and something that was very touching for me. Um, as my, my wife and I, my wife, Carrie and I are constantly looking for ways to sort of have shared experiences with our two little ones. Uh, that was exactly what got, uh, Steve into writing his first book and then subsequently his second book, not to mention the other things that he does in his spare time, which are all sort of shared experiences that he has with interests that his kids have just a really great conversation. Uh, Steve was a great guest. He was a great dad sounds like to me anyway and i really think that you guys will enjoy this conversation i know i did uh, let me know if you have any questions go to the facebook community page smallmoves.co forward slash community to let me know what you think about this episode but that said let's go ahead and get to dr steve cunningham here we go hey this is john lee dumas of eo fire and you're listening to the small moves podcast small steps for big progress let's prepare to ignite hey steve thanks for coming on the podcast it's my pleasure thank you the audience just got a quick sort of 10,000 foot flyover about your background, sort of what you do and the writing that you do. But I wanted to obviously give them a more informed uh, perspective on that. And you likely know yourself a little bit more than I know you. So why don't, why don't you just sort of take the mic and give the audience a little bit of background on yourself? Like, how did you, like, you're, you're obviously a practicing physician. How did you get into, why did you choose that field professionally? And also what got you into your writing? Just give us a little bit of a background if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So um, I actually took a very roundabout way to surgery. Um, in fact, I didn't even realize that medicine as a career was a possibility at all, anywhere in the realm of possibility for me. I guess partly because there were no doctors in my family and I came from sort of a um, working class family and it just hadn't honestly occurred to me that I could go to medical school until I was essentially almost done with college. Um, and then it just, yeah, it just sort of occurred to me. And, and so I, you know, had to take an extra year of college and get all my pre-med stuff done, having already taken a lot of um, other liberal arts 
courses, uh, philosophy and uh, arts courses. I even took a gymnastics uh, course in class and just all over the place, um, sort of initially. Um, I was actually a chemistry major and a second major in Spanish. Um, and, and then I did my pre-meds and um, even from there, it continued to be a very circuitous course. Um, I did a um, fellowship at the National Institutes of Health after graduating from college. It was a program called... Oh, Bethesda. Yeah. Well, this actually was in Baltimore, but yeah, same main campus is in Bethesda. And this was called the Pre-Erda Fellowship. So it was designed for people like me who had recently graduated from college and had an eye on going to professional school, MD or PhD school. And it was a one-year fellowship, which I then extended for two years because I had met my wife um, during the first year. Um, I, um, and uh, so I deferred um, my acceptance into medical school and um, finally started medical school back at Creighton, where I'd gone to college, um, only to transfer then to GW because my wife was uh, fixed at her job at NIH here in Baltimore and was lucky enough to transfer for my first or second year. And after medical school, then I stayed in the Baltimore area and did my residency at University of Maryland, where again, I took the maximal securitist route in spending three years in the lab <laughs> to do research instead of the usual uh, zero, one, or two years. And then I did a, um, a fellowship in pancreatic and hepatobiliary surgery, which is just a fancy word for surgery of the liver, pancreas, and, and the bile ducts. And so I finished that um, about seven years ago. And since then, I've been here at uh, St. Agnes in Baltimore, where um, I'm the director of pancreatic and hepatobiliary surgery and the director of research. Yeah. Got it. And you, you mentioned, you mentioned, you said Creighton. Yeah. Creighton University. I've, I've never heard, I've never heard any two people pronounce that the same it's way. Right. That's the proper, that's the proper pronunciation. It's, it's Creighton, like with an A, with an A sound. Yes. Well, that's, that's how everybody I knew there pronounced it. And Got it. So that's how, that's how the locals said it. Okay. But like most, yeah. Got it. So at, at what point now that was, that sort of got you to where you are professionally, you've got, you mentioned, you mentioned some of the other stuff that you were, you were doing, like specifically the gymnastics. I, I was actually looking at your website and I saw a couple of the, uh, the gymnastics things that are on there. Like what, what got you into gymnastics and do, do you still, do you still practice that at all? Yeah, I, actually, I, it's a, it's a hell of a, it's a hell of a workout. I'm all, so I'm always sort of wondering how. Yeah. And, and I find ways of working out that don't involve the gym, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's actually, it's a great question. And it's a great segue to sort of, you know, your theme for this podcast with small moves as a way mm -hmm. to move towards big progress. Um, because, you know, for example, I essentially had no formal gymnastics training and other part from, you know, goofing around the backyard um, when I was a kid. And that one semester of a PE class in college that I mentioned, um, and then mm -hmm. just slowly, um, over the last uh, couple of years, I've been taking an adult gymnastics class and have sort of, you know, week by week, little by little, plugging away, you know, worked my way up to where I can now do a standing back tuck, for example, um, which is gymnastics lingo for uh, backflip, by the way. Um, and I saw that video. It terrified me. Anyway, moving on. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it's hilarious. Um, I was um, at a retreat uh, a couple of years ago, and there's a um, there's a talent show, which is a lot of fun. A lot of the kids in our community participate in it, and they give out goofy awards afterwards, and a lot of us um, uh, adults also participate. And I, I did that for the talent show off of the stage onto the floor, and I uh, had my back to the audience and sort of standing on the edge of the stage. And um, I don't know what was uh, more terrifying um, <laughs> for them, actually, the fact that I was going to do it, or if I was more terrified because of their gasping, thinking I was going to give somebody a heart attack. <laughs> I sort of heard this <gasps> collective gasp as, just as I left the ground. Um, but luckily, nobody had a heart attack, and I landed on my feet, and everybody was fine. And, wh- and where was this again? Uh, this was at a um, at a retreat um, that I went to with my family for a weekend retreat. Um, okay, gotcha. So, like, it was it yeah. wasn't it wasn't say a medical conference. No. <laughs> so, God, God, for, no. God forbid, in the, in the event of triggering somebody heart attack, I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry, not my specialty. Uh, <laughs> he's yeah, like, sorry, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't deal with the heart. I don't like those people. No. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so so anyway, but you know, I, the reason I came to that class um, is because my my kids were taking a gymnastics class, and you know, I was finding myself um, like a lot of parents, you know, spending a lot of time um, taxiing my kids here and there, um, and still trying to fit in somewhere, getting exercise um, for yourself. And- yeah, for myself, and still trying to fit in spending some quality time with the kids. So it was just, you know, doing an activity together over which we can bond and um, have some high-yield quality time. And it just so happens that this particular activity, this gymnastics class, provided all three of those at once. So it was like, you know, what's better than that? It's like maximal efficiency. You know, at this very same time, you know, I, I get my exercise, I provide transportation to my kids' event, and we share an event because they take the kids' class while I take the adults' class. Um, and so we have this sort of, you know, um, shared activity, and it's just, it's been fantastic. So we've sort of kept doing that for the past several years, and little by little, I've sort of worked my way up and can now do, you know, some of these these more advanced skills. In fact, my the, the coach of the class jokes because I, I can do a standing back tuck and 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 some other advanced skills, but I still can't quite do a cartwheel properly. <laughs> but I can do it. But it's like it's just pretty ugly. Like the the one the one move that we learn when we're four years exactly, old. Right. Like the one move that we move when we're four years old. We can't we can't master that one, but we can literally do a full backflip in while standing in place. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yeah, funny. It's probably my lack of shoulder flexibility. I also have a terrible <laughs> bridge, but. But yeah, so it's fun. Yeah. Yoga, yoga could help that. <laughs> no, that's funny. Now, now, um, what what got your out of curiosity? What got your kids into gymnastics? the the reason The reason that I'm asking is uh, what one of the one of the initial things that dawned on me back when I was originally just sort of percolating the idea of what small moves would eventually become was the fact that there wasn't really a lot of advice out there for you know 
really, regardless of the area of life, one of the areas that bugged me was specifically fitness, which was, you know, like you want to, like, you want to get fit? Great. Okay. Go join a gym. That's a hundred dollars a month, a half hour from your house. Go there five days a week, spend two hours there, drive back, take a shower, you know, basically spend three hours, five, three, three plus hours, five days a week towards your fitness goals. And oh, by the way, all those, all that food that's in your cupboard, you know, throw it all away, never look at it again, never eat it again. And, you know, at that point you'll be healthy. (laughs) Like, yeah, well, um, okay. So since that's, since that's impossible, what else can I do? It's like, well, that's what you got to do if you want to be fit. And if you're not going to do that, then you're just not committed enough. I'm like, why doesn't somebody just tell me to chase my goddamn kid around the back room for 45 (laughs) minutes? I'll get as, I'll get as much cardio. I'll get as much cardio as if I ran to the gym a half hour, a half hour away, you know, doing that because you've got a, if you've got a, if you have a toddler or a, you know, just after a toddler, you've got a built in treadmill at your house. If you just chase them around. So I'm all, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm similar to you. I'm, I'm all about trying to find, find ways to kind of, you do get shared experiences with your kids that are more than just sort of sitting around watching TV together at the right. end of a long day. So well, what, what, um, what got balance, them? Right? I mean, you don't want to spread yourself too thin. Like if you're going to do something, do it. And like, like my sister used to say, my older sister, wherever you are, be there. Um, but at the same time, you want to have maximal efficiency, right? If you got to, if, if the dog needs a walk sure. and you need exercise, you know, run the dog. Um, you know, if, if your kids need mm-hmm. to go somewhere and you can somehow participate in activity, do it. I do the same thing with uh, my kids' voice lessons. I actually, I actually can't sing at all, but I've always wanted to sing. <laughs> so my girls both sing mm-hmm. um, beautifully on the Peabody's uh, Children's Choir, and, and I take them to their voice lesson once a week generally. And it occurred to me, you know, after doing this for six months or a year, that um, this delightful teacher um, in Columbia, Maryland, um, might actually be open to the possibility of trying to teach somebody like me who couldn't carry a note if it was in my back pocket to sing. So, so I, I started sharing their, their lessons also again. And now it's, it's sort of enriched that whole experience so that we're, you know, I'm, I don't feel like I'm just a taxi driver anymore. We actually do something together. It's a lot like the gymnastics. Got it. And you've got four kids. Did, did I see that right? Four. Four. Yeah, 17, 15, uh, 13, and 10. Okay, gotcha. Boy, girl, girl, boy. Gotcha. And which which one which one or ones is currently in, are currently involved in uh, gymnastics? So they all have been, except for the oldest, the 17-year-old boy who just hasn't had an interest in it. But the, the two girls who are in the middle both did it for several years, and they sort of moved on to other activities. And now my 10-year-old son and I sort of do it. It's, our, it's, it's become our... Uh, you know, a weekly routine. Got it. Did, did the, did the 17 year old pick another course? Like did like the, the, his wasn't gymnastics, his was swimming or his was, you know, yeah, martial arts or whatever. What right, was his yeah, thing? He's a, yeah. He's a swimmer. Um, until we moved, um, and uh, a little bit farther away from the pool and he started high school and there really wasn't a, a active swim team there, but there was a big track team. And so he could change to running. Okay. Which is another reason why then, decided to pick up running. I thought as long as I'm walking my dog, um, since I'm the dog walker in our house, um, (laughs) I may as well, you know, combine walking the dog with getting some exercise. And then I thought, well, if I actually take up running somewhat seriously, I've now got something else in common with my son, who's a cross country runner. So, you know, again, it's a, even though we often, we don't run that together that often, although we do run together sometimes, 
but still we're doing the same activity. We have shared experiences. We can talk about things that, you know, we otherwise wouldn't talk about. So it's, it's, you know, it's all about, I think, you know, combining things in your life, um, not in a way that spreads you too thin, but in a way that is not just additive, but even synergistic, you know, you get even more out of, out of both activities. Got it. Yeah, no, that, 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 Kind of reminds me back back in episode four of the podcast, I interviewed Corey Smith. Uh, he's he's a running coach out of Santa Barbara, California. He's a for, former like grew up in Baltimore, went to Calvert Hall, then Villanova, and you know top top shelf runner, uh-huh. and um, is now is now a really successful running coach out there. He he talked a lot about the same thing because one of the things that we talked about was. There originally the conversation was going to be about, you know, how can people start getting into running? But the conversation very quickly morphed into, well, should you start running? And if you like, if you're what, what are the reasons? What's the why behind wanting to start running? Is it is like, hey, I want to run because I want to get in better shape. And his perspective was, yeah, that's great. But those people don't stick. He's like, if that's the, if that's the reason, then those people tend not to stick. We're like, you have to kind of have a goal in mind, whether it be an event or like a very specific goal beyond just general fitness. Like, and that's what it sounds like was the case with you was, you know, it's, it's a way for you to spend time with your family. It's not, it's like, oh, let me find another way to work out. Hmm, let me try right, running. Right. Yes, um, so that's exactly right. It's almost like the running then becomes a side effect. Um, yeah. Know. Yeah. It's like the, uh, and, and, it, and it's so, and it's, it is funny how, how you can sort of, sort of like crowbar in fitness activities into stuff that you do with friends or stuff that you do with your family or whatever. It's like, you know, if you've got, you know, if you've got one of the things that we, that we do, you know, our family, our, we're, you know, we like to go out and hike. Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. kind of our thing. We're spending time. We're spending quality time. We're chasing our toddler in this, in this case, rather than chasing him around the back room mm-hmm. of the house, we're chasing nice. him around trees and we're, you know, running up and down paths and <laughs> trying to stop her from, you know, running and jumping in the uh-huh. lake, which right. is always exciting. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, so no, it's, 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 and oh, and oh, by the way, there's incredible fitness benefits to hiking with uh, on uneven terrain. So, uh, oh, by the way, that's a, that's a nice little side benefit to that. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's like, what is like, what do you, it's like, what do you and all of your friends do every weekend? Do you sit around on couches and watch football games or do you pick up footballs and go outside and physically play Football it is like that's yeah it's a similar like similar activity similar similar camaraderie but hey there's actually a benefit out of it exactly right so where did you where did the initial spark have you always been a writer like by by yourself self description like have you always been either a writer or is that something that you sort of came about a little bit later as either a hobby or something where maybe somebody challenged you in a competition or what? Like, where, where did that come about? Because you've you've published two books now on Amazon, right? Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. We'll get it. We'll get into. But we'll, I'd like to get into both of, both of them just to kind of dig into the the backstory of both of them. But and your first one was two thousand nine. You told me. Yes, that was uh, called Dinosaur Name Poems. It, okay. Um, it came out in 2009. It won the 2009 Moonbeam Award uh, in two categories, actually. It's Spanish language books because it's 
bilingual. Um, each poem, as well as the illustrated glossary in the end, are in both languages, Spanish and English. Okay. And cool. the other category was uh, children's poetry. And that was published okay. by Three Conditions Press uh, here in Baltimore. And the second one, um, sort of continuing on that theme of nomenclature, um, which is a fancy word for the names of things, um, mm-hmm. was called, um, playing on that word, was called Pomenclature, Poems About Your Body. Um, and it was, it's a book, um, again, of poems and art for children, um, I think both in the 48 range, considering the rhyme, rhythm, and color of the pictures, but also the 8 to 12 range, um, considering some of the content and the plays on words. Um, Got it. And it's, like the name suggests, um, poems about about your body. There are poems about different organs, poems about uh, things that go wrong with those organs or disease states, and then poems about tools that the field of medicine employs to you know help people um, with some of those problems. I was about, I was about to say that's an, that that one was sort of a nice blending of your writing yeah. and your professional life as a, as a doctor. What now? So how how long have you how long have you been a writer? And what what made you choose sort of the genre of more the the children's children's style right. books? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I've always enjoyed writing. I remember since I was a little kid, but I, I didn't really start writing poetry. I think until. Um, until the 90s, I was, like we said earlier, I was uh, in Baltimore doing this pre-doctoral fellowship, and I just happened one day to see a sign for a poetry class at Dundalk Community College. Um, and I took that class. It was with Rosemary Klein, who uh, was the editor of the Maryland Poetry Review and um, a teacher at Dundalk College, and I have to say an amazing poet and a terrific friend of mine now. And I ended up taking two or three classes with her as well as an independent study and really got into sort of writing poetry for adults. Um, And then I ended up getting married and we had kids. I had my first um, child towards the end of medical school. And then when he was about eight or uh, seven or eight years old, he was going through the mandatory dinosaur infatuation phase that a lot of little boys go through. (laughs) Um, And so... You know, and because for those seven or eight years, I've been reading a ton of kids' books to him. All three of those things sort of came together and dovetailed all at once. You know, one, um, writing, sort of having a passion for writing poetry. Two, having for the last seven or eight years read all these kids' books. And then three, having this little dinosaur lover who was just, you know, over the top, infatuated with dinosaurs. Like he was just a bad case yeah. of the dinosaur infatuation. So all three of those things came together. Um, and I was doing my, my lab years at that time in residency. So I had a little more flexibility, uh, just enough to sort of get the ball rolling. And um, that's where the sort of the dinosaur name poems book came from. Got it. Okay. So the, the, the idea for the first book that what what got you sort of that idea for the first book, the dinosaur name poems? It sounds like that was sort of that initial infatuation, but did you go right from that right into writing the poems that would become that first book? Or did were you just sort of doing one-off stuff here and there and then realized it's like, hey, I'm noticing a theme here. Maybe I should go back to the drawing board and start all new stuff with this particular focus. Like how, how walk me through sort of that process. I, f- I find that sort of 
that sort of incremental process of how these things happen sort of fascinating. Like how did, what did that, was that book sort of a culmination of all the ones that you had written already just for your kid? Or was that something that started from scratch? So, you know, I I think I've always been interested in the names of things. Um, In fact, I've even written some um, academic papers on this. In fact, one of them was published in the Archives of Surgery um, several years ago called The Nomenclature of Nomenclature. Um, and that's, a great, that's a great title, b- yeah. by the way. And, and yeah, so because, you know, in, in, in medicine, um, often uh, the names of things are not only helpful, but the names of things get in the way sometimes. Um, and so I sort of came up with this <clears throat> this categorization of, of errors in the way we use names. In fact, I called it uh, a stuck classification, S-T-U-C, which stands for Sources of Terminologic Uncertainty and Confusion. There were three types. You know, one type is where you confuse one technical term for another. Um, the classic example there would be like a, um, a paniculus is sort of that um, excess tissue that a lot of us have sort of hanging off the abdomen. Um, but then panis is completely different. It's the tissue that forms in a rheumatoid joint. And, but nobody, almost nobody, it seems, uses those terms in that way because panis is easier to say. It rolls off the tongue. It sounds like something really big. Um, and so people use that to refer to a paniculus, which is incorrect. So that was sort of you know, type one. And, and we published a paper on that too, sort of suggesting a new term for that, which would be panona, just because the, the Latin suffix ona means something really big, whereas iculus means something really small. So that seemed to sort of maybe the perfect term for that. And then, you know, type two was the use of vaguely defined terms, and type three was the use of technical terms, which, while they're not confused with other terms, they're just readily open to misinterpretation. So, and, and it's, Got it. it just, you know, this comes up all the time in the literature when someone's talking about something because, you know, in medicine, you have to be so clear when you're talking to your colleagues and even when you're talking to patients, when you're writing a paper, you know, the, the, the terms have to be perfect. And it, um, sure. it, it's not, I'm not the first person to think of this, right? I think, I think Confucius was probably the first one who said um, something like, if the terms be incorrect, then the statements do not accord with the facts. And when the statements and the facts do not accord, then business is not properly executed or something like that. I think that, I think it was from the Analects or I think it must have been, who knows who said it first, but I think Confucius is, is someone who said that. And, and even bottom, bottom line being bottom line being, if you're using the wrong words to describe something, it's a false exactly, statement. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's even, you know, Harry Potter does so many great things and even, even, uh, even does this, right? There's this great line, I think it's in the first book, um, where Dumbledore says, call him Voldemort, Harry. Always use the proper name for things. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that's so true. It's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> um, in a book where every other character in the, in the, in the entire storyline refuses to exactly, use the word. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So that's, yeah, so for those of you who don't know the Harry Potter story, no one, no one will, will use the word Voldemort. They call him he, which may not, should not be named and all these other things. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I mean, for all the, you know, psychological and, um, 
and um, you know social reasons that Albus Dumbledore, the character in, in in Harry Potter, suggests, and for all the other reasons that we just were talking about, it's just really important to use the right name of things, you know, to call things. Sure. To, to, one to name things that that have a name, and 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 also to use those names properly. In fact, you know, one of my um, my favorite philosophers. In fact, I think probably the most important philosopher, I think in in in, in Western civilization is probably Ludwig Wittgenstein, who's, um, who says uh, something like, you know, the main source of our failure to understand things is that we don't command a clear view of the use of our words. Um, we just don't, you know, it, it, when, when we seem like we're having an existential problem, it's probably just that we're not using the words right. You know, we don't, we don't command, as he says, a clear view of the use of our words. Um, and who and that was uh, Ludwig. Who was that? W i t t g e n s t e i n. Ludwig Wittgenstein. And so, yeah. So I've always been interested in the names of things. Um, and so, you know, as I was watching, observing my son go through his dinosaur infatuation, um, you know, it just it struck me that the names of dinosaurs are just super interesting, right? Like Tyrannosaurus rex means tyrant lizard king, right? Uh, Stegosaurus means plated lizard. So Saurus means lizard. And um, that's why they all end in Saurus more or less. You know, Stego turns out means plate. So that's why it's a plated yeah. lizard because the Stegosaurus is that one with the gigantic like diamond shaped plates going along the back spine of the dinosaur. And so, and so I, I just, sure. you know, it all sort of hit me at once. All those, those three things that combined to make the, the, the book and then all this thinking I've been doing in the past about the names of things that was like all came together. I was like, that's it. Like, that's the book. And, and so each poem is titled the name of a dinosaur. And then there's sort of a subtitle that has the meaning of the name and, you know, the etymology and the pronunciation. And then the poem itself is just a play on, on the meaning the play on, on what the, the dinosaur name okay. means, you know, typically sort of, you know, fun and goofy playing around with, with the, the meanings of those names. Now, at, at what point, out of, out of curiosity, your, your son at the time, and when you sort of, when you were writing the book, your son, if I'm doing the math right, eight years ago, so your son was give or take nine? Yeah, so he was born in 2000, and the book was published in 2009. I think it took a year or two from when we started it until when it came out, so that would put him around like seven, yeah, seven years old or eight years old. Got it. Was he was he your initial editor on the pro, on the project? Like when you were? Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He and his and his and his younger sister, two years younger, um, who happens to be uh, uh, really a master of language. I mean, she in first grade she had read the whole Harry Potter series. You know, speaking of Harry seriously. Potter, um, uh, well, up until the like the last chapter of the seventh book, when she stopped, and we we're like, "What are you like? What's wrong? What are you doing?" And she stopped because she didn't want it to be over. <laughs> so she stopped there and went back and started at the beginning again. So, um, so yeah, she's always been um, an avid reader and just a master of, you know, like a, uh, of, I think she's sort of a master of, of the English language already given for her age. But, but, but so she, so both of them, so, so he was sort of the inspiration and she was sort of my editor and, you know, I sort of, you know, have run both manuscripts by her and, you know, you know, sort of a road test, if you will, make sure, you know, she's always got great suggestions. 
He's <laughs> like, he's like, and well, and welcome back to gender roles. The guy is like, the guy has the idea, and the woman comes behind and fixes everything that the guy screwed up. He's <laughs> like, even he's like, and even even the first grader can fix what 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 daddy screwed up. That's funny. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's what that's super cool. So out of, out of curiosity, how long did that phase of not finishing that last chapter last for her? I'm curious. Oh gosh, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not hundred percent sure she ever finished the book. I mean Oh um, fu- oh funny. I think, she, I think she probably did the second time through, and then she actually came back and it was in the process of reading them in Spanish also, because we we speak Spanish in our home. My wife is from Spain and and at least when the kids were very young, we all spoke to them in Spanish. We both spoke to them in Spanish. Um, and she, she having, I think, a particularly strong grasp of, of language, sort of it was one of the best in the family at, at speaking Spanish. And so she went back and read them in Spanish. Well, I don't think she, I'm not sure if she ever got through number seven in Spanish, but um, I'm sure the second time through in English, she probably just plowed through and finished that last chapter of book seven, just a little bit the bullet. <laughs> So now you you mentioned you mentioned your your wife was from Spain. You guys spoke Spanish at home. Now, did you did you yourself speak Spanish before you met your wife? Yeah, or so is that Spanish, or did she sort well, of teach? Or not, did she sort of teach yeah. you? No, she. So her her English is way better than my Spanish. So we speak English together. Um, although Spanish, I think, is one thing that drew us together when we met. Um, and I've always loved languages. And in fact, Spanish was uh, my second major, and I had spent some time in college in Spain for a semester abroad and and also in the Dominican Republic as part of a medical service trip. So I, you know, had a strong interest in Spanish um, and sort of one of the bonds that I think we shared there. Um, but yeah, she, she, um, my Spanish is pretty good. It's, it's maybe just subfluent, I guess I'd say. Um, okay. Uh, I can, you know, I, I use it a lot at work with Spanish speaking patients and um, I do okay with some native speakers, depending on how much slang they use and how fast they, they speak. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> but yeah, but she, she, um, but her, her English is perfect. So we, we tend to speak English together. Got it. Got it. No, that's interesting. And like, especially the, especially that the language of choice Because my, my, my wife and I, we, we have, plans of spending spending some time in like the central south america mm-hmm. regions um so that that's something that's gonna that's sort of on our agenda to try and learn at the very least to like you like you said maybe a sub subfluent level at some point before we uh before we take off yeah. but now that so now i was kind of, i was just sort of curious uh, speaking it speaking it in the home i'm pretty sure is a pretty critical ingredient to that i would imagine just you know everybody everybody that you talk to that you know was taught a second language in school if you is a you go you go to spanish like with me i mean i went to spanish class i was you know i was in private school from third grade through high school so i had spanish from third grade all the way through sophomore year of high school so and i can't tell you i can't speak a word of and like i outside of the choice the choice you know cliche words like i can't speak a single complete sentence in the language that i took for nine years because you know you go you go to class you speak it for 45 minutes twice a week and then that's it so the the whereas back in 2001 the summer of 2001 i took a solo vacation to france for 18 days and i was so i was 
by myself in France, not speaking a lick of the language outside of hello before I showed before my plane landed in France, I came back knowing basic conversational yeah, French. Yeah. I've said I I've since lost it because I don't use it here. Uh, but it, it is, it's, a, it's amazing. The difference that that oh, immersion yeah. makes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're, we're, we're trying to figure out the same thing with, with our daughters. Like I've got a two and a half year old and a six month old. So we're trying to figure out, it's like, okay, we re just like all the advice says, it's like, if you're going to teach your kids foreign languages, you need to do it early. Cause that's when their brains the most pliable and so on and so on and so on. So we're like, okay, well, what language, what language we want to make sure we want to, pick a language that maybe we can learn alongside her so that we can do the same thing that you said, which was to try and speak it in the home just so that it takes much quicker with all of us. Her, her grandfather on my, my, my wife's father speaks Greek. He's Greek. So we're, she's been picking up a lot of Greek phrases and terms along the way. So that might be up there in the list, but we might also look at some other things too. Yeah. So the so the second book came out. You said what? Five was that? Five years? Five years after the first one? Yeah. So it came out this past summer. Um, okay. So actually, more like gosh, more like eight years after the last one. Um, well, it's not like you do anything else with your life, you know, besides <laughs> writing kids' books. But uh, yeah. so right. what was like? What uh, what were you doing in that in the meantime? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? This, just you know, this twiddling my thumbs. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but yeah, just you know, so people want to hear from their healthcare actually. provider. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, no, that's why it took so long because I had like zero time, and you know, most of my 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 training was before the work hour restrictions sort of took effect. So you know, it was really bad before mm -hmm. then. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but the, the, whereas the first book um, got traction because I was um, doing my lab years and had a little more tough, uh, control over my time, the second one um, just had to get fit in, in the middle of being an otherwise, you know, extremely busy dad and husband and surgeon. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, you know, where it really becomes more relevant to, you know, to your podcast, you know, like, how do you get big things done when you don't have big spaces of time? Um, and like, like, it seems like we're always telling our kids, you know, when they're faced with a big job or a big problem, you know, it's tell them all really big jobs are just a bunch of little sure. jobs, you know, all really big problems are just kind of a bunch of little problems. Um, and so, you know, whether it's, you know, writing a paper, um, and you know, as a director of research here at uh, St. Agnes, I'm often uh, it's so I, I'm sort of tasked here with making sure that the residents in our program get a good um, scholarly experience because that's required um, to be a good surgeon, but it's also required by the residency review committee, um, and um, and so it's my job to make sure that happens. You know, but the residents. Um, you know, are busy being residents, and it takes a lot of time to be a surgery resident, even after the 80-hour work week took effect and work hours restricted. I mean, it's 80 hours a week is still a lot of hours. That's a lot work. of hours, sure. It's a lot of hours. Actually, right? if you don't mind, yeah, if you yeah. don't mind taking a little sidebar there for a second, sure. that I obviously I heard when that happened the the work hour restriction and how like the, there were 
camps of people on both sides that were pretty passionate in both directions about you know whether this was a really great really great thing because it was better for the health and well-being of the physicians but then people that had been through the ringer before the way things were were like well yeah that sounds great and it's cute and everything but sometimes a surgery is going to be 18 hours straight and there's nothing you can do about that and if you're not primed for it by those some of those earlier years going through residency at 120 hours a week like that you're just not going to be prepared for it and then healthcare will suffer like what what's your that was that was sort of the extreme cases from what i heard from the outside looking in i'm not a healthcare provider don't play one on the internet so <laughs> from from the from the insider just i guess from your perspective like what first off when did that take effect how did that affect you and sort of what what were what are your thoughts on that topic? I'm cu- I'm curious if you don't mind. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question and certainly worth worth a, a sidebar, as you say. Um, you know, so by when I started my residency, it was pre eighty hour work week, and then that whole transition period sort of happened while I was away from residency during my research years in the lab, and I came back and sort of it was all instituted and it was it just it felt like a completely different world and I, I had sort of a unique or people in my year had a had a unique perspective um, especially those of us who did you know a lot of years away three years of research because again we sort of left residency when nothing had changed and came back when everything had changed you know because it took it just about three years for that whole whole change to really happen and the dust to settle. And so we really got a good view of both sides. And, you know, you, you essentially nailed it in your comments. I mean, you know, the, the, the advantages are obvious, right? I mean, before working, uh, you know, over 100 hours a week is just untenable. I mean, it, it, you know, something had to change. You know, people were falling asleep at the wheel and, and you know, making mistakes. And it, it's, I think it's sort of something, something had to change. Um, but the the downside is you're right. There's less continuity um, because you know surgery as a profession doesn't lend itself that well to being shift work. Uh, sure, clock in, clock out. You know, for for a lot of obvious and and other you know more subtle reasons. Um, sure, and and I think it's like, like whoop, it's like oh, ding ding ding, yeah. it's lunchtime. You know, right. it's like cover him up with a blanket. I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> right, right. That's um, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> funny the, the joke. It does obviously the changes don't happen during an operation, but still, there are patients who are in the <laughs> hospital on a surgical team receiving care from a surgical team, and you know, if there's something going on that requires more time um, and that person who's got the job of, of looking after that patient is, is has to leave, it can be somewhat disruptive. You know, and people have argued that you can fix that with really high quality, thorough sign outs. And, um, and because no one can work, you know, all day, every day, you have to eventually sign out. Um, and sure. I think the pendulum has probably swung and, and, you know, a little bit back in the other direction now where, you know, people real, realize that a little more flexibility is probably reasonable. Um, it's definitely important to look after the, the health of, of, of trainees and patients, um, which is you know, obviously very related. But at the same time, it's important to realize that, you know, the, this, a profession like medicine requires, you know, some flexibility because things happen. Yeah, I was, 
I was going to ask about that. Like how, how and how in the current environment, how does that flexibility manifest itself? Like for example, when it it's it's 80 hours, it's 80 hours, for example. You're going you're about to go roll into surgery yourself and it's you're at the 75 76 hour mark. Well, it could be a 12 hour surgery. What happens? Do you get do you get pulled or you yeah, so- like our our surgeons or staff or the nur- like the nursing staff or the surgical nursing staff, like are they pulled when they hit the eighty hour mark? Yeah. So, so if you're a trainee and you've been on call overnight, you should not s- start a long operation the next day. That's going to put you way over your your hours. Um, the, Got it. You know, the, okay. The, the guidelines and the rules are are for trainees. They don't apply in the same. Um rule the sorry the same way through the residency review committee for physicians who are in training um but they still apply in other ways you know like the call schedules are arranged um such that you know people are not you know unduly tired um because first of all no one wants to do that and it's just not safe you know for, sure. for anybody um so yeah so you know we work that out with the call schedule. Um, but yeah, it's a great question. There's a lot of balance, there's a lot of um, pros and cons both ways. And I think the pendulum swung pretty far in um, away from the old way of doing things and has swung back a little bit to allow some flexibility. And I think, you know, with a few more years, we'll settle out at a really nice place in the middle sometime where, you know, surgeons are able to get a good education, get the experience they need. Patients are going to, you know, get the care they deserve and it's all going to be done safer with, you know, better health for the trainees and better safety for the patients. I think, I think we've, we've really, we've now come very close to sort of approximating that. And I want, I wonder how, how much, how much is the say digitization of medical records sort of helping in that continuity of care while still being able to look after the trainees. Cause like that, that's the, that's the fear, right? I mean, like for, from my perspective, you know, from my perspective as a patient, I'm obviously, again, I'm not a doctor, but if you're my doctor, you Steve are my doctor. And if you're not there and somebody else is covering, I, as a patient, I mean, if I'm about to go under the knife, I, as a patient, understandably so i'm very nervous going into that process i'm like well uh, who 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 is who is this person do, like yeah. do they know do they right. know what's going on with me like even though you know he's sitting he's sitting there holding a paper chart that's got you know ink and pencil yeah, and eraser marks and Absolutely. whatever just yeah. sitting in front of him it's like people ask yeah it's like do you have any yeah. idea what's going on with me and, uh, whereas i'm i'm assuming i'm assuming the streamlining of the medical record process as that's slowly slowly too slowly coming over the years like i'm i'm assuming that that probably makes that process the handoff process a little bit easier yes i mean is that is that something that you could that you've seen yourself or is that really a non-factor because you guys (laughs) from an outside from an inside perspective it's like the the public outcry about this is a little overblown because you know we're doctors. We're not really stupid people. We kind of figured this problem out 20 years ago and, you know, we just, we keep it, you know, we just sort of keep it to ourselves. Like this is the system we have and it's works or what is the digital medical records, a legitimate factor in this process? Yeah, no, the electronic medical records, um, electronic, uh, handoff tools and lots of other tools have, have really, 
um, helped make that transition. Um, in fact, when I was in residency, our head of surgery at the time um, invited me to do a commentary for one of the surgical journals, journals. And this is just what we wrote about. It was, I sort of, again, liking words and catchy titles. This, this one was called More Kairos with Less Chronos, right? So those are two Greek words for, for time, right? Chronos um, mm -hmm. is time by the calendar, by the watch, you know, measured time. Yep. Um, and Kairos is time like I had a good time. You know, they're different, and there are two different words in Greek, it turns out. Um, and so we, the, 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 you know, it was an idea about how do you be, you know, how do you, how do you get the same education and provide the same level of safety for your patients, um, when you've got less time to do it, because now your work hours are restricted. So how do you get more Kairos with less Kronos? And, and a lot of the tools that we talked about in that article are, like you said, um, ones supplied by technology and, and both handoffs and electronic medical records have, you know, made a lot of improvements, not just in the efficiency, um, but also in, in, you know, the accuracy, the, you know, nothing's worse than not being able to read something written in a chart because it was scribbled with sloppy handwriting. So, so there's a lot of things that the electronic medical record fixes. Not that there's a stereotype about that in your business. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, I'll tell you, so it's a great, it's a great sidebar. I'm not sure. How, I can't remember how we got to the sidebar, but yeah, it's a, Super important. Yeah. So no, no worries. Um, so tell, so then tell me this, but getting back to how you were able to sort of squeeze in the creation of another book over the last, like you said, about se seven, eight year gap right. um, for somebody, for somebody that's out there, like, cause there's, there, there's two different types of authors, right? There, there's, and I'm sure, you know, somebody, somebody will probably write in and yell at me about this for narrowing it all the way down to two, but there, there's, there's two types of authors, right? There's people like you, which are people that do other things that also happen to write. And then there's full-time professional authors that a hundred percent of their livelihood, a hundred percent of their income and a hundred percent of their professional and sadly in a lot of cases, uh, personal time goes towards the writing of their craft, whatever, whatever that is, whether it be poems or stories or screen, you know, um, movie scripts or whatever, whatever it might be that is their particular thing that they choose to write. Um, but then there's other people that write like you that write because they like writing or write because they like a particular subject for, for someone, for someone like you, like how would one, if you're speaking to the audience that, you know, you're hearing like for someone, someone like me, that's always liked the idea of writing, but the thought of the blank white page is terrifying. Like how would you recommend somebody that thinks that they have a book or even as simple as a blog or whatever, whatever it is, however their writing is going to manifest itself. Like how do you recommend people sort of start that process? Is it just taking out a white piece of paper and doing stream of consciousness every day for 30 days or what? Like what, what would you recommend for somebody that's, Want that want, likes the idea of writing or that loves reading and thinks that they could write if they could just get over the terror of the terror of it. Um, what would you recommend for people like yeah, that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's hard or, you know, near impossible to sort of do anything in a vacuum, you know. So just sit down and with your white piece of paper and say, I'm going to write now, but not really know what you're going to write. It just doesn't, 
doesn't work. Um, sure. Everything's got to have traction, right? Nothing sort of happens in a vacuum. And so I think one of the most important things for writers to do is to read. It's, it's almost more important than writing, although writing itself is very important and is, in fact, a form of thinking. But you've got to have something to write about. And um, a good way to come up with something to write about is just to take a class where you've got assignments. You've got something that makes you actually write. And then often, it's hard to put a number on this, but I would say many or even most books um, you know, did not start with that blank piece of paper. You know, they started as something else, you know, an assignment or your graduate thesis, which you then converted to a book or a single poem that you mm-hmm. wrote because you happened to be inspired. And then that was sort of the nidus, the, 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 um, the, you know, the germ that then grew into, um, you know, a larger book. And, you know, but the, the, the beginning has got to have, Got, you've got to have soil, right? Like the, the seed doesn't grow floating in the air. It's got, to, it's got to land in the ground and the conditions have to be right. So, you know, how do you get your soil and your seed just right? And um, it's like you said, it's not with a blank piece of paper. It's, um, it's something specific. Either something specific that you already have in your possession but don't realize. Um, like, mm-hmm. for example, that one poem you wrote um, that, you know, may not ever be in the final book, but maybe the, um, you know, the springboard from which you move to a whole other set of poems. Or it may be the fact that you, you know, have a kid who's infatuated with dinosaurs. And by the way, you really love the names of things. And you, you know, used to write poems in college. And they, they, they sort of, now you've got something to work with. Um, or it may be sure. um, that, you know, you just decided you didn't have any of that, so you just decided to take a class, um, you know, a writing class where you someone will do it for you. They'll give you assignments. They'll say, you know, write about this. And then one of those papers, um, or, or I should say all of those papers, are potential future, you know, seeds of a larger project. Um, you know, I just, I just finished a really great book um, um, about the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, by a scholar named um, uh, Omer. And, you know, we were talking in a, in a class I'm taking at the Harvard Extension School, so a class on religion, which is a whole other area of interest of mine, um, about how this... There's a, there's a conflict in the Middle East? <laughs> yeah, it turns out there is, yeah. And, and this particular scholar, you know, wrote this book about it, and we were talking in class about how the book came about, and, you know, not surprisingly, it was, um, like a lot of books, you know, probably um, a group of papers that then sort of came together, or it was a, it was a graduate thesis. Uh, and when I was in the lab um, during my residency, one of the most important questions I think our lab mentor used to always ask us when we read a paper, a scientific paper to review, he would say, all right, forget what they're talking about and, and, and how it affects our research, but just stop and think, how did they come up with this? Like, what was their attraction? Um, and it was a way that I had never really thought about scientific papers before. I never really asked myself that question before. And mm-hmm. I've later thought many times, what a great question it is. You know, you, and you can do it not just with scientific papers in a lab meeting, but with a book of poems or a, a kid's book that you see the, on your kid's bookshelf or a book that you're reading yourself. You know, like, just it's interesting to ask yourself. And you can't always answer it accurately, accurately, you can speculate. In the scientific world, it's a little more easy to 
kind of put your finger on how they came to write this paper by looking at the previous papers they've written or even or knowing something about that lab group. But, you know, just to ask yourself, what is the traction that, that this paper had? Like, where did this come from? Did they just say one, you know, one day I'm going to write this, I'm going to do this experiment just out of nowhere? Well, no, it never happens like that. You know, it's probably because they had done something else sure. in the past. So just focusing your attention, I think, on, on what's the traction for your project is hugely important because if, if there is no traction, then you, you got to get some. And, you know, one, one way to get some is, you know, to just take a class. I mean, community college, colleges across the country have creative writing classes. Yeah, like in, introduction to creative writing. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, someone that's going to actually give you an assignment and, and, you know, so many of them are online now. Like I said, I'm, I've taken a couple at the um, Harvard Extension School and they, the, they're just, they're fantastic. It's so easy with, Again, coming back to your point about technology before, it's so easy to take them remotely. It makes it fit into your, your day so much more conveniently than, you know, if you had to go to a brick and mortar um, campus, which is a fine way to do it too. It just, you know, it depends on what your what your life is like. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I've seen similar courses offered on like the online learning platforms like Udemy, you know, like there's Udemy, there's, you know, pro- things that are similar to that where they offer online based courses on every topic area that you could possibly imagine, whether it be web development or public speaking, or in this case, creative writing or fiction writing or, you know, whatever it might be. So yeah, no, it's, it's definitely interesting to see, to sort of see what, what some of those options are that are out there for people that are looking to get into writing. Like I remember it wasn't necessarily writing, but a similar experience that I had was with regards to public speaking, which is, another thing that tends to terrify the general public. Yeah. Yeah, And my, my, when I first, I was part of a leadership course back in 2004 leading into 2005. And one of the, one of the aspects of that course was a public, was a public speaking course. And it was a full day workshop where basically the workshop was for the first half of the day, all 20 members of the group would get up in front unprompted and unprepared and speak about themselves for five to seven minutes. It would be video recorded and then we would all go to lunch. And then after lunch, we would come back and put them on the projector screen and we would watch them Mm -hmm. every single video. I was terrified at what I looked like. It was horrifying. And you had no idea. And so it scared me enough where I immediately went out and joined a Toastmasters group, which is exactly like what you're talking about, where, you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little different than going to a class where you go to regular meetings, there's roles that are assigned and there's people that are designated as speakers and you have to prepare speeches and you have to prepare them based on a specific criteria. It's like, you have to give a persuasive speech. You have to give, you have to tell a story you have to give an introduction speech you have to do and there's a there's a curriculum of you know you go you do these speeches you graduate to this level toastmaster you do these ones next then you graduate to this level and it's amazing how that sort of structure helped like is there is there any sort of resources well it sounds like for you the main suggestion that you made was was sort of twofold one read like so the i guess the initial two two steps for people that are interested in writing is step one read a lot so that you could so that you can either in the genre that you're interested in writing or 
intentionally outside of that genre, just so that you can sort of bring a different perspective. Sounds like that could be something that would be helpful. And then second to that, find some sort of a prompting device to force you to write something specific so that you're not sort of left to your own insecurities to sort of come up with what you'll be writing about or not. Yeah. Yeah, And I think it's important whether it's, you know, writing or exercise, it's important to do a little bit every day. And I don't mean every day, like in a literal Mm -hmm. sense, but I mean like consistently, like I said earlier, during the first couple of years of my residency, you know, I I was working way more than 80 hours a week um, in the hospital. And yet we had to do reading, right? That's everyone's, you know, you've, you've, it's super important if you're a resident in a, in a, in a surgery program to read surgical textbooks. You got to get all that knowledge in. You got to get the experience, but you also got to do the reading. But how do you find big blocks of time to read? Well, you, you don't. You find lots of little blocks, you know. So, you know, I would take a, a surgery textbook, you know, divide the number of pages by the number of days I had and, and just, you know, turns out if you break things up into 365 pieces, they look pretty small. Um, and it, I would get through, you know, sure. about a textbook a year during residency, which, you know, sounds like it's hard to do, but in lots of little pieces, turns out not to be so, um, so hard. Um, because it's, 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 you know, sure. it's easy to find um, time to read a couple pages. It's hard to find time to read a whole book. Um, and so you got to come up Sure. It's like, I don't have to, it's like, there's no way, there's no way to find time to read this entire chapter right now, but I can read two pages. Like I can read two to three pages here. I can read two to three pages on the next bathroom break. I can read two to three pages here and there. Yeah. Before I pass out, before I pass out in the break room, I can, you know, finish off the last page and a half before passing out. Yeah. The the timing is, uh, the timing is important. You know, what do you prioritize to the alert? portions of your day and what do you prioritize to the sleepy portions of your day (laughs) (laughs) yeah that 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 funny that funny little laugh that you got got out makes it it makes it sound like i just reminded you of something that you did yourself (laughs) back in those days (laughs) no that's funny all right no um actually actually, um one thing that just crossed my mind was something you said on one of your other podcasts about, I can't remember which one it was, but it was, I remember thinking it was very insightful and wise and something that people should pay attention to. I, I'm not going to be able to quote you on it, but you said something about um, how you had sort of decided at some point that you were going to, you know, um, a certain number of days of the week, you know, go to bed at the same time with your, as your wife. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, it, it, just sticking to something like that can make such a huge difference in, in your connectedness. You know, um, you're going to go to bed at some point, both of yours. So you, you know, why not try to coordinate it and you know have again that shared experience? And and um, yeah, I just remember thinking when you said that it was really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it was. I mean, just the, there's so many there's so many people that I've talk to that are like, I don't, I don't, I like you don't recall, you know, which of the conversation, which of the conversations I have where that came up, but no, it's, it's so true. Like, like so many, so many people that I talk to that have sort of been in the midst of failed marriages, like that, that's one of the things that always constantly comes up is, you know, is like eventually the, the sleep schedule gets disrupted. And so therefore sort of the continuity of the, 
couple's shared experience of the day gets disrupted. Like it's not, it's like that, that, that little bit of time that you have with your spouse, at least this is the case with me and Carrie, that, that little time that we have in bed before bedtime, before we go to sleep is the time that we sort of have our daily debrief. And it's not a structured thing. It's not like we've got a questionnaire that we ask, but right. it's like, Hey, you know, what is like, what happened today? How was Zoe? What was, you know, what, right. how was tutoring? Like, no problem. How was work today? You know, that's just kind of that, that breed, that process or that habit, I guess is, it breeds such a wonderful open level of communication yeah. so that everybody always knows what's going on. Yeah, it's hu- hugely important. Um, and, and, and again, it's, it's a little thing which ends up in the end producing this really big thing, which is, yeah. you know, a better marriage. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. So uh, yeah, it's one of the, one of the many things I've learned from my wife. <laughs> Tra- translate translation she's like she she's the one that had to force me to do it <laughs> no but she it is important to her and uh and and to me and and we remind each other of it a lot and i think we're both always grateful for when we make it happen actually speak speak to that for a quick second if you don't mind it obviously you met you mentioned your wife was from spain uh-huh. how how much of that do you think is a cultural thing versus because uh, obviously you're you're obviously not from you're obviously not from Spain you're from here you're obviously relatively a driven Westerner you know go, having gone to medical school oh by the way also written books it, it sounds like you know she was the one that sort of almost tamed that a little um, bit in yeah, you know with the language like is it, do you think that's cultural or is it just her so. Um- you know, it's funny you ask that because um, she's probably at least as driven, if not more driven than I am. Like she, um, mm-hmm. you know, she's honestly a world leader in in her little area of mRNA stabilizing proteins in the scientific world. And, you know, is, you know, currently out of the country giving a talk and next month will probably be in another country giving a talk on her research. Um, so she's, she's a, a little bit over the top, like, like, like I am in some ways about, um, like you said, being driven. So she's she's not like the like the stereotypical, um, you know, let's have our siesta and you know relax. And so, but yet, despite the fact that she tends to be very driven, she I think is also just very wise. And 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 it, we recognize that you know, like like you um, pointed out in that other podcast, and I think nicely articulated just now that that particular aspect of your of your life that one small move if you will turns out to be really important um and and she just she she knows that and and you know yeah no that's great yeah so no steve that i think that's a that's a pretty solid place to wrap up yeah at the at sort of at the end of the day you know we it was like we have we have our careers we have our hobbies but there's relationships are kind of a big part of making our hobbies into something productive either monetarily or legitimately productive in the way of in the way of yours like you're actually pub- you're writing books and you're publishing books and oh by the way this ha- happens to be something that you enjoy but w- even if it's something like someone that's got someone that's particularly big into martial arts or yoga or whatever that thing is that 
sort of is layered on top of everything else that's going on in their life that could conceivably be viewed as an inconvenience. Um, you've got to have you've ha- you have to have certain systems and some buy-in in place with the people that are around you that matter to you. Otherwise, there's no way that that, that can work. Yeah, well said. Um, yeah, so no, I think that's a solid place to wrap up. One quick question that I've got for you, and this is a question that I ask every guest on the show, is that again, kind of getting back to small moves, you know, s- small things that can make significant difference over time. Uh, one question that I like to ask all the guests on the show is what purchase, and this can be subject matter specific, this can be about your medical career, this can be about your writing, or it could be something completely unrelated. Um, what purchase have you made in recent memory um, of $100 or less that's had the most dramatic impact on some area of your life? Um it could be like it could be something it could be something for billing clients it could be a system that kind of when you sit down to do your writing it's something that sort of keeps you an app maybe that keeps you on track by proactively shutting down all social media websites on your browser so that you don't get distracted it could be anything like, it could be free it could be cost money but we try to keep the number low can you think of anything that's that is a, a lower dollar amount that's made a pretty significant impact in some area of life? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, um, gosh, about a, it seems like five, 10 or 20 things are popping in my mind, but none of them seem <laughs> like they're just have made all the difference. I mean, there's so many little things that make a little difference, which again, which I guess again is sort of consistent with, with the theme here. Um, but sure. uh, one certainly for me has been that has been those classes that we talked about. Um, I've just gotten so much efficiency, so much mileage out of, out of that, that one little, you know, um, you know, I think it's $16 per class for the gymnastics class, for example, um, in, in terms of, you know, combining, getting my exercise, having some shared experience with my kids, getting them to their activities and back. It's, it, that's probably, is, it's, just, it's made a huge difference in, in sort of thematically and in, in, in combining things in ways, again, that don't detract from each other and aren't just additive, but they're really synergistic. So I think for me, that's probably what it would be is those, those classes, like the gymnastics class. All right. Now that's great. Um, Steve, this has been really great. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a pleasure for me, Jason. Thanks so much. It's a great podcast. Yeah, man. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the show. I really enjoyed this conversation with Steve. I hope you did as well. Uh, Really quick before you go, go over to smallmoves.co forward slash community and let me know what you think about the show. And also, please go over to iTunes, if that's the platform that you're listening on. Please go over to iTunes and leave an honest review on the show. And Go ahead and subscribe to the show while you're at it, if you haven't already. That's something that's really helpful to me. Uh, iTunes is a search engine, a glorified search engine, much like almost everything else. And it 
responds and gets the show in front of more people, the more reviews and the more subscribers there are for the show. That's something that would really help me out a lot. So I would greatly appreciate it if you would do that for me. So either go to iTunes, leave a review or come to the community Facebook page. I'd love to have you. I read every comment that comes through either of those places. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your feedback. That said, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the show. And I'll talk to you next time around. You've got this. Oh,